Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. England. Russia. Oh, shit. Well, of course. <laughs> He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah. So if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello, and welcome to the arbitration station. My name is Yuval Dolkis Kulboy. And I'm Brian Kodak. And the two of us. We are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% springtime. Where in the world are you, Brian? I am in my office in London, where I should be, but I just came back from Seville, Spain. Beautiful place. Oh, we, we, we chatted for a few minutes before pushing record i didn't didn't even ask you about that i I saw it on instagram it's a beautiful city isn't it it's gorgeous and i'm i'm such a a spanglophile um so i not a word not a word (laughs) (laughs) so i think actually i was with someone who said very unique and i was like um but we yeah it had a great time it was it's a beautiful city walkable 25 degrees Really, really nice. So I got a mm, that's bit of a more than more than one percent of springtime feeling, I guess. <laughs> yeah, one percent summer. <laughs> Where in the world are you, Joel? I'm in Copenhagen for a few more days, then back to Stockholm. I'm going back and forth. It seems almost every day, but it's seriously every week, basically. You can never get away from it. No, but it's my fault. I moved away uh, without having any professional connection to my new city so i have to go back all the time. <laughs> that's true that's true well you do have a connection to ia reporter who is our um sponsor for the season uh season three it's an online service focused on international investment law for more than 10 years i reporter does offer up to the minute coverage of new arbitrations recent decisions and notable policy developments their team of expert analysts offer inform and incisive analyses as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential to find out why the world's leading firms universities and government agencies subscribe to the ia reporter visit iareporter.com and i think i can say maybe i am uh, too quick on this depending on how fast we are in publishing but you should visit iareporter reporter if you don't have the energy to read the very recent uh Conoco versus venezuela award that came out a few days ago, which is long and incredibly complicated. It's going to be summarized and analyzed in a very uh, convenient format for the the lazy reader. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's uh, great. And you can also follow them on Twitter if you don't. If you're even lazier than the Lazy Digest. Right. Right. <laughs> what else is new in the life of Brian Kotick? Um, we, nothing. We have, um, we're writing our articles, Joel, about costs and arbitration, which we'll be presenting in DC on April 8th, the 13th annual investment arbitration conference by Juris. And we have to prepare that. Yes. As if you didn't write enough and footnote enough. Now you have to write and footnote again, but I guess that's the job. Yeah, it is. It's kind of hard to complain. It's it's what we're in for. Where do you do you always work at home? 
No, I used to, but I have, in fact, since just uh, a few days, I'm a part of a, a very fancy co-working, you know, shared office kind of arrangement in, in downtown Copenhagen. It's an old converted school. It's an amazing building filled with Danish design and art and a lot of pretty people, none of whom is a lawyer. <laughs> I can tell for a fact. It feels like I'm sitting there with my tiny, tiny computer editing book drafts and all the rest are just advertising executives and <laughs> you're the one who took the me. wrong turn they're like what is he doing here? <laughs> <laughs> i had to explain myself a few times there because i mean it's it's uh, it's ridiculous how great that place is i wish i had thought about doing it it's like if you if you were to construct something from scratch yourself you know it, imaginary it that, that's how good it is it, they have uh, an amazing cantina and a great bar and great coffee that's included in the price and it's in the perfect location and you know the, the light everything is it's almost too good to be true so i'm working very productively i this makes me think of something are you ready i have a proposal <laughs> yeah you should start academic chambers whereby you sit in these type of like living, moving, working spaces with other academics in international art law. It could be public or private. And you guys like share spaces and like live in an open plan and like shoot ideas off of each other. And you guys can have like organizations. Aren't you just describing a law faculty? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, I love your enthusiasm for my profession, but what, <laughs> what would be the added benefit compared to having a free office space with other academics in a downtown like urban area? Well, because you would only have like one other person who does the same type of law as you do. Oh, uh, that's right. Okay, yeah. And in certain cities, like in London, for example, or in New York, it would make sense where you have a critical mass of people who, yeah. who work in the same field. It's not a bad idea, actually. And then you but could it, be it like have experts. Be, you. It, you guys could also like pull each other together to be experts in cases as well. It's like, oh, I hired um, for Yugo's wagon <laughs> instead of like 20 Essex Street. <laughs> and they would be like, oh, I hired an expert from there. They were really great. Yeah, that would probably also create some problems with, with independence and impartiality if you were to, to pull up. You want to be as independent as possible as an expert. But I like the I like the idea of hanging out with other arbitration academics, although they tend to be lone wolves, <laughs> as am I. <laughs> it would be the most silent office ever. Yeah, I'm, I'm working very hard on being nice now that I have an office with other people, but it's so... It doesn't come naturally to me the way it does to you to just say good morning and ask people what they're working on. So I really have to actively make an effort to <laughs> look people in the eye. The awkward elevator ride up. You're just like, do I care enough to say how you're doing? Yeah. Well, I don't. There was a guy, I think he's in some sort of IT or graphic designer or something. He he got a phone call today and he speaks Swedish, I realized. So I, I might have to ask him for a coffee or something and bond over our semi-expat life is that mark yeah that's it's what oh we're so far people don't understand us yeah do you see sweden over there <laughs> exactly everybody still understands us i i should say before we move on to to the substance of it today that i thought some more about the book club because i got some feedback from from a few people uh, that i trust that the book club sounded like an amazing idea but it wasn't really thought through was it and no of course it wasn't 
uh, it, we might be able to do something good with an actual book club that in the sense that we also tell <coughs> sorry tell people in advance what we're gonna read and then, right. we, actually, <laughs> and then we actually read it <laughs> so to that end the next time whenever that happens to be that we talk about an arbitration text in the arbitration book club we are going to talk about dealing in virtue a book from 1995 or 1996 perhaps uh, written by two american i think professors who aren't at least not primarily law professors and who studied the world of international commercial arbitration from the outside in the mid 1990s and it's a it's a classic especially to the older generation of arbitration practitioners so that is something that we're going to address i have uh, just bought it last time i tried to buy it which was maybe 2 years ago i instead ended up buying practicing virtue which <laughs> is that? a book a collection of articles i think it's sort of a, a tongue in cheek response to dealing in virtue ah, it's a book okay. like a festschrift you know um, a liber amoricum there's no english word for this is it the when you retire, people in your honor write articles in a book. Right. That's what they did for for Charles Brower, and that book is called Practicing Virtue. Uh, so if you're if you're looking to buy Dealing in Virtue, uh, look look out for Dealing in Virtue and try to not buy buy Practicing Virtue. But is this like the philosophy behind what we do in like the idealistic terms of solving the world's problems? Yeah. Well, I'm not gonna. Um, uh, go ahead and say things okay but, but uh, yeah basically and it explains it, it explains some of the logic and the dynamics in the world of arbitration and mm. i think it, it's interesting historically because it also describes what what does not exist anymore the the first generation of international arbitrators the grand old men of just like you know uh, western white men who basically didn't charge parties because they were already all financially independent by the time they became arbitrators and it was viewed as a calling in the 1970s you know it's an honor to be an arbitrator and you do it as a public service and they contrast that with what they call like a the, the young eager business-minded generation of up-and-comers including all the people that we now think of as the old guard like mm -hmm. Fandenberg and all these giants who were then like the young Turks <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just daydreaming about being financially independent. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, if you are, uh, or you are about to become, I'm trying to fake my way into a segue here. Uh, you might be interested in the first topic of today, which is sanction, sanctions, 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 and arbitration. A topic I know very little about from my own practical experience. To check it, it's a good thing. Um, the next topic that I will be addressing is mandatory rules in international arbitration. And the reason why we took this topic actually in conjunction with sanctions is the fact that it is one of the panel discussions, one of the Oxford style debates that will be at the third annual ICC conference, which we are one of the media sponsors for. Um, so you can go to their website at ICC. Um, dot WBO no <laughs> yeah that's right that's right is it yeah okay dot uh, org and you can go to the third ICC European Conference on International Arbitration you can sign up um, and you will maybe see me there um, interviewing people on the streets I I won't be there but I'm starting to get invitations to side events so I'm starting to get the 
impression that it, this whole Paris Arbitration Week is, is sort of blossoming into a place to be, which I'm saying not just because we are involved in as media sponsors, but I really think it, <laughs> uh, it's, it's expanding. Yes. And then the happy fun time topic will be a bit of a practical exercise, but it is talking about hearings, preparing for hearings and the logistical nightmare that can be a hearing. Um, oh, so we'll talk <laughs> about that. Happy fun time nightmare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's get started. Okay, so imagine an uh, an average international arbitration, let's say an LCIA arbitration, uh, seated in London okay. with uh, po- Polish and Russian parties. Okay. The, the arbitrators are uh, Belgian, English, and American. The Russian party is a sanctioned entity Hmm. and it wins the arbitration and then attempts to enforce the award against the monies that the Polish company holds in an account in uh, a Hong Kong branch of a U.S. bank. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. How many sanctions related issues can you count? (laughs) This is going to be like how I give my kids bedtime stories. (laughs) How many things can you count? (laughs) Well, it is, of course, Russia that sets off most alarm bells uh, for the casual sanctions observers that we, I think, count ourselves to. But as Dimitri, our researcher, who is Russian and has absolutely no bias in this, he very helpfully points out uh, in the research he prepared for this segment that there are a few other countries affected uh, or whose nationals or companies have or uh, are now or have in in previous times been subject to sanctions. And just to, to tee up the segment, let me read off this list just to highlight that it's not just Russia, it's actually a pretty significant issue. So the following countries have one way or another been affected by sanctions. Afghanistan, Belarus, Bosnia, Burma, Burundi, Central African Republic, Canada, China, Congo, Cuba, Hmm. Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Ethiopia, Eritrea, European Union, Guinea-Bissau, Republic of Guinea, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Libya, Mali, Mexico, North Korea, Rhodesia, Rwanda, Serbia, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Tunisia, Turkey, Ukraine, UK, US, Venezuela, (laughs) Yemen, Yugoslavia, and Zimbabwe. (laughs) And Neverland Ranch. Just kidding. Sorry. It's basically wow. everything but Sweden well and Denmark. Well done, Joel. Yes. Thank you. It's actually Dimitri who did it just to uh, broaden the focus from Russia, which is what we tend to discuss otherwise. <laughs> uh, but moving into the, the uh, substance, what do we mean by sanctions? And this is unfortunately one of those issues that overlap several different legal boxes. So law and reality doesn't always work out perfectly and in perfect harmony. So the answer on the question, what is sanctions depends a little bit on who you're asking. So there are a few different approaches that I think are helpful to outline what we mean by sanctions before we move into how sanctions come into arbitration. So we have a subject based approach, which the ILC, the International Law Commission, has been known to use. Uh, The ILC uses the term sanctions to refer to coercive measures adopted by international and regional organizations, in particular the UN, EU, or African Union. Then we have a more measure-based approach uh, under which sanctions are understood as a variety of economic measures, notably embargoes, 
and embargoes can of course be of a general nature or limited to the trade of certain goods like arms or mineral resources or stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, we also have such measures adopted by international organizations such as uh, suspension of voting rights uh, that would not be considered sanctions uh, under most definitions uh, then we have a purpose-based approach which is the most obvious of the three that i mentioned here uh, which basically considers the sanction to be any measure taken against a state to compel it to obey international law or to punish it for a breach of international law okay i think that's the one that we're sticking with because it's the broadest right <laughs> but let's make it a bit more pragmatic as this is after all the pragmatization station <laughs> i guess sanctions may have various forms just to make it concrete i already mentioned arms embargoes for example which are common um, a total ban or a partial restriction on trading weapons with any particular country or restrictions on the movements of specific persons travel bans preventing listed persons from entering a particular state or group of states and now we're starting to move towards uh, the arbitration angle here another typical form of sanction that is all relevant for us is the freezing of assets belonging to specific persons or entities Uh, and all such frozen assets within a certain state or group of states are typically frozen and persons are then required to comply with sanctions and cannot make any assets available Uh, so if you have so even uh, people who are not themselves subject to the sanctions cannot make assets available to the people who are subject to the sanctions basically without violating the sanctions right so that's why we care about it in arbitration it's not just the person subject to the sanction but all people dealing with that person have to observe the rules of the sanctions then we also have financial sanctions uh, export bans investment bans uh, prohibitions on the supply of services in certain sectors etc 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 and to make it somewhat more concrete further uh, just to mention some of the sanctions regimes that we are typically working with three big ones we have the united nations uh, under the it's article 41 of the un charter Uh, So the Security Council can issue sanctions and currently there are 14 such sanctions targeting states such as South Sudan or non-state groups uh, such as Islamic State or Al-Qaeda and some individuals. Then we have US sanctions under the Office of the Foreign Assets Control, OFAC. Did you know about that? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's an agency of the which department department of homeland security u.s treasury but uh you you managed to name one department <laughs> <laughs> so pedantic <laughs> i'm sorry i didn't know this at all of course i've had the time to prepare uh, ofac administers and enforces economic and trade sanctions uh, and the long arm of u.s sanctions is incredibly long because it's oh, yeah. the u.s yeah you know universal jurisdiction and all of that that tends to come in when we talk about the u.s and international law uh, and they can cover both direct sanctions and 
sectoral sanctions covering a wider sector of business. And then we have EU sanctions, uh, which is um, structurally pretty similar to that of the US. But there are differences. First of all, US sanctions are broader in scope than the EU ones, typically. Uh, For example, the US trade sanctions against Syria restrict a much wider range of goods. Second, within the EU, we, of course, have each member state uh, with a competent authority to interpret and authorize and deny and enforce and, you know, do all the things that are associated with sanctions, unlike in the US, where this is all done uh, uniformly at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And EU sanctions are generally adopted for a limited period, uh, not longer than a year, typically, and subject to renewal, whereas US sanctions can be very long in time. And unlike U.S. sanctions, EU sanctions do not apply extraterritorially to non-EU individuals or companies. So U.S. sanctions, uh, at least if you ask the U.S., might apply to everyone, everywhere, all the time. They do. I got an email at Mannheimer saying, do not work with anything Russian-related or Russian-adjacent or Russian-equivalent or Iranian-adjacent-related or equivalent. Oh, Really? Yeah, yeah, it was like a whole, like a really long email being like, What happened then? What did you do then? Did that set some sort of procedure in motion for you to start reviewing all your work? Or did you just chalk it up to U.S. being obnoxious and I don't have time for this? Well, the U.S. is listening to this podcast, so I would say I followed every rule according to, and I filed my taxes on time. Thank you very much. Um, Okay, great. (laughs) <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> no, no, no. But I luckily wasn't working on any cases that were like, even though, you know, Sweden is known for having a lot of like Russian parties. I, I did not at that time on my docket have anything that was anywhere near that. But there were people that were and it was pens down for them. So quite interesting. Yeah, it really is. But that's good. Uh, we can leave the, the preschool intro to sanctions behind and move into arbitration then, which is what we're interested in after all. What we most often care about is not maybe, now I'm speaking in a legal sense and not as um, somebody working for a firm with a practical mind. Uh, In the legal sense, we care about arbitrability in the sense that if there are sanctions involved, we don't typically want that issue before arbitrators because the dispute typically then involves public decision making somehow. Right. Uh, A useful analogy is uh, competition law or antitrust, as you would call it in in the U.S. Yeah. So disputes that have some sort of public decision making or some some sort of public purpose should not be solved in a private secret arbitration. (laughs) And there's um, a good example of this, an ICC arbitration between, uh, it's called uh, Fincantieri Cantieri versus Ministry of Defense of Iraq. So obviously it's an Italian company versus Ministry of Defense of Iraq. (laughs) And in this arbitration, there were two Italian ship building companies who each had concluded an agency contract with a Syrian national for the sale of military goods to Iraq. And Iraq had fallen subject to UN sanctions following a resolution in 1990. So the Syrian agent then brought arbitration against the two Italian companies to obtain payment of the commissions due to him from the two companies. Uh, But the two companies invoked the inarbitrability of the dispute in view of the sanctions imposed by the Security Mm -hmm. Council. Um, And the arbitral tribunal in an interim decision distinguished the application of the sanctions regime as a matter of mandatory law (gasps) to the the merits of the dispute that you're going to talk about. Yes, sir. 
So they put that in one box and the arbitrability of the dispute in another box and basically confirmed that the occurrence of sanctions as part of mandatory law does not automatically result in the dispute as such being in arbitrable. So it may be part of mandatory law, sanctions that is, but that doesn't mean that the subject as such is in arbitrable and then the Italian companies sought to annul this interim decision before the Swiss courts uh, and the Swiss federal tribunal upheld the arbitral decision on jurisdiction here and then also considered the case arbitrable, basing its decision on Swiss law, which contains a very broad definition of arbitrability. Mm-hmm. So it stands, this uh, this uh, arbitral award. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Another related question is... Um, whether arbitral tribunals should apply sanctions as a matter of substantive law. Should apply sanctions? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, now I may be over-theorizing things here, but if there are sanctions binding a state, depending on how that state, you know, relates to international law, you might say that the sanctions are part of that state's law. So if you were to apply Uh, the law of state X, does that mean that the tribunal has to apply the sanctions as as part of the law, so to speak. And here we here we can quote honorary president of the Swiss Arbitration Association, Mark Blessing, in a speech where he said, one of the most difficult issues in international arbitration is the impact of mandatory rules of law that require to be applied or at least considered as use cogens, irrespective of the applicable law. So on the one hand, the international arbitrator is not the guardian of the interests of foreign states, which sometimes show a kind of arrogance in seeking to impose their national laws, perceptions and interests on others. On the other, the international arbitrator is not simply the obedient servant of the parties. His responsibility is not solely vis-a-vis the parties, Mm. as has too frequently been maintained. Mm. His responsibility goes far beyond. So notwithstanding that this is a Swiss old person who says his when he means his or hers, (laughs) <laughs> or there yes this is i think a good point highlighting this tension that what what are the arbitrators to do and i don't really have an answer for you uh, maybe you do <laughs> of what whether or not the arbitrators should uh apply sanctions, sanctions. yeah mm-hmm. or i guess i mean maybe we should just put a pin in this and return to it when you're talking about mandatory no rules, i actually don't that's... have it in my thing so we can bring it up now and have it be a teaser for the next for the next segment but um, I think that it should apply because it's part of the like current regime as of the date of the arbitration. I guess. Yeah, I it, think that's a good argument. Just to, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, as a general blanket. But I think that um, it would be interesting if sanctions came in in the you know the timing of the sanctions as well. Don't you think? In what respect? I mean, yeah, it well, has if, to. If the if the case is initiated, I don't know, I don't, I can't like think of a hypothetical right off the top of my head, but if the case is initiated and then sanctions are imposed midway through the arbitration and that sanction related to some of the, you know, circumstances that gave rise oh, to yeah. the dispute or yeah. the enforcement of that dispute, how that would play a role in, like, for example, if a court would consider something non-arbitratable because of a sanctions regime that was in place, but that sanction regime was only in place at the time of the, the enforcement court or the set-aside proceedings were taking right, place. Right, right. Basically, do sanctions have retroactive effect under the applicable domestic law? Precise. Hmm. Good question. Let's leave it out there. Right. For, and I think the answer should be no. But, um... Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, we are 
are all taught pretty strongly, I think, almost regardless of legal background, that we should not apply laws retroactively unless in very specific circumstances. It doesn't feel very good to the rule of law fans out there. Um, Dimitri has also dug up a bunch of other issues where sanctions and arbitration intersect. Let me just mention them for the sanction fans out there because I want to end on one particular issue for the last couple of minutes. So the, I'll run through the other examples of where sanctions come into play in arbitration. One, force majeure, frustration mm -hmm. and, and hardship. So depending on the jurisdiction, a party may refer to one or several of these doctrines to either excuse or suspend its performance under contract. Two, sanctions in assessment of damages. So a party to an arbitration may argue that international sanctions are of direct relevance to the calculation of damages for breach of a contract. It, for example, it may submit that its counterparty would not have been able to make significant profits due to the effect of sanctions, either the effects on the broader economy or on the specific business of the claimant, with the result that it should not be liable for damages. Mm -hmm. Three, security for costs. If one of the parties to an arbitration is subject to sanctions, this fact may be used, or rather, I think, taken advantage of, I read a case about this, by the other party to put pressure on the sanctioned entity by obtaining security for costs. God, Essentially, you know, down. So, yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. <laughs> you can't reach your funds. <laughs> so now give me more funds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We also have four post-award implications enforcement primarily at the enforcement stage sanctions related issues may arise under uh, arbitrability as i already hinted or public policy in in the new york convention and uh, so it might risk the validity of the award when you want to see it enforced but now finally the final issue the impact of sanctions on arbitrators institutions and counsel involved in arbitration this is the fun part and this is why I, uh, I was intrigued by your email from the U.S. authorities. Mm -hmm. So uh, the sexiest part of this is, I think, arbitrators. Because ideally, an arbitrator should ensure personal compliance with any sanctions regime applicable by virtue of the law of their home jurisdiction, which if you're an EU uh, citizen or an EU registered lawyer also includes, of course, European Union sanctions and the sanctions regime applicable at the seat of arbitration and any sanctions regime potentially applicable extraterritorially i.e u.s sanctions <laughs> right so there's a lot to uh, uh keep your eye on as an arbitrator and i don't know because I haven't attended any conferences or worked on a case where this has been a live issue. Mm -hmm. But I don't know to what extent arbitrators are very good at looking into this. Or feel that they should or have the authority to do so. Yeah, exactly. And if they should investigate or just take you know, what, what's on the, the case info that they get when they are being approached. Uh, yeah, if you get a case and you're appointed by the, you're appointed by the parties and you start the arbitration and then you realize... This guy is from a country that bears a lot of people on a sanctions list. Maybe I should look this up. Um, yeah, exactly. And it, it, that looking up exercise might be pretty straightforward if it's like a, 
a specific uh, sanction that we all know about, but it's mm-hmm. less straightforward even, I think, in relation, for example, to UN sanctions, right. which have not been made part of like national legislation. It's just a, a broad international law sanction against country X, basically. Very, very hard to uh, do your due diligence as an arbitrator, I think. Do you think that an institution has any responsibility to undertake such a search? Uh, this is... It was, it maybe still is, not not a touchy subject necessarily, but it, there were, it was a big discussion that I followed uh, semi-actively a, a few years ago in the institutional world about this, uh, because there are, of course, many touch points where sanctions might be relevant, uh, including the seat of the arbitration or the location of the institution. Um, and the Southeast Asian Arbitral Institutions, if we may call, it, call them that, uh, SEAC and HKIC, they used for a while, probably still do, sanctions very aggressively to market themselves, particularly to Russian businesses, because they were sanctions free, you know, come to Southeast Asia, we don't care about sanctions. Oh, I like that. The Cayman Islands of (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then in response to this, I think LCIA, ICC and SCC, so the three biggest European Union institutions at that time, when the UK was still part of the European Union, which I guess it is for another week or so, they published a joint paper emphasizing that these institutions are perfectly capable of dealing with arbitrations for sanctioned persons, although it does involve a number of administrative steps, I think, to address your question that they have to be careful, in particular when it comes to um, uh, costs and, you know, uh, posting advance of costs and that kind of thing. Right. So when, when they hold funds for sanctioned entities, it involves a lot of admin for them, which I think, I mean, if you can choose freely, it might just be easier to go somewhere where you don't have the issues of sanctions. But then again, the sanctions are there for a reason. Uh, so it might be good that you have some sort of law regulating what you can and cannot do with funds. There are some institutions that have seen challenges raised by sanctions further to your question. And I th- I'm thinking now in particular about the LCIA, which I have no inside knowledge of my Self, but I would imagine that you know they they have a placing system where you typically pay multiple deposits during the course of the arbitration instead of one large sum upfront, uh, and I, that's one of their selling points that they push uh, when they market their services, and that would mean that they have to obtain licenses for every deposit that they take, which may take I guess you know several days, maybe even several months to obtain from the authorities. So rather than just taking one sum at the beginning of the arbitration, if you have a big case, it's like nine sums. That's nine bureaucratic exercises in order to get right. it approved by the authorities. Yikes. That's right. Um, and finally, I think we should just mention that there's some interesting council dynamic here involved. Like an, an analogy to the Southeastern, Southeast Asian arbitration institutions. That's a long phrase. We have, uh, especially in Russia, I've been following uh, the GAR headlines on this over the years that you see lawyers leaving uh, primarily U.S. law firms, setting up domestic law firms instead. So in Russia, for example, a lot of the work uh, has flown away from large international firms who have to comply with international sanctions to domestic firms. They've even shut down those firms. Yeah, I think uh, Aiken Gump, their Moscow office, just disappeared and turned into yeah. 
a Russian firm instead. <laughs> and so that is something that we've seen for for counsel. That's not why you left the Swedish firm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Too many sanctions. No, 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 no. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's it from me on sanctions. Uh, this was for me very useful to learn some more about sanctions. Obviously, it's been discussed on and off uh, in in the world of arbitration, but since I haven't had the pleasure of being subject to a sanction myself yet, <laughs> and you haven't been, you know, part of a firm that has sanction memos circulating to like give to clients and stuff. So but that's the thing. It's a yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we. Anytime that happens, you get a memo from the compliance team saying this is what you need to know about sanctions for your client, for you as a lawyer, but also for your client doing business in certain parts of the country or other countries. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think the key is just to not make any payments in U.S. dollars and not, not appoint any American arbitrators or uh, counsel. <laughs> dual national? Was that cool? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on. As we hinted in the previous segment, there are some issues of mandatory rules in international arbitration. So we hope, just like the ICC European Conference uh, in April 1st, of this year to enlighten people a little bit on how the uh, what the role is of mandatory rules in international arbitration. Um, they are just imperative provisions of law that must be applied in, in an international relationship, irrespective of the law that governs the relationship. Um, they're generally defined from a purely functional point of view as rules that would not meet their objectives if not applied to a number of situations which they define themselves. So the distinguishing feature of what makes a mandatory rule mandatory is the interests they serve usually. Um, they serve over individual public purposes or national or economic policies. Um, so if you think to Article 9.3 of the Rome Convention, it determines that mandatory rules, um, the respect for which is regarded as crucial by a country for safeguarding its public interests, such as its political social or economic organization to such an extent that they are applicable to any situation following within their scope irrespective of the law otherwise applicable to the contract. Um, these can be procedural, for example, due process, um, but they can also be substantive, looking at competition, securities, anti-corruption, antitrust, as you mentioned, or some import or export laws. Um, they, they can be positive obligations, so, you know, they what you have to do in a certain situation, but they can also be defenses to a claim, the reason why a state acted in a certain way, the reason why a party acted in a certain way um, would be based off the mandatory rules. For example, a party can seek to void a contract based off certain obligations that are coming from a mandatory rule of that country. Um, but they can come from domestic law, but they can also come from instruments of international law. Um, so you have like human rights or climate justice, you have transnational law like the EU, um, or you have domestic law, as I said, looking to environmental laws or insolvency procedures. Um, and in particular, if you look at Article 3 of in the International Law Association's resolution, which is the recommendations on the application of public policy as a ground for refusing recognition and enforcement, because we know that one of the grounds... Um, to refuse enforcement is or recognition is um, it's contrary to public policy. Um, that ILC, the ILA, sorry, the ILA resolution says that an awards violation of a mere mandatory rule 
should not bar its recognition or enforcement, even when said rule forms part of the law of the forum, the law governing the contract, the law of the place of the performance of the contract, or the law of the seat of the arbitration. Um, and they can come from different origins. Um, so as I said, they can be domestic and international, but within that they can come from um, the lex cause, the lex arbitri, the law of a third country, international law, um, it, or if you know, you're seeking enforcement, the law of the enforcement jurisdiction. Um, so these can come up um, in many, many different ways. So hard to argue, though. I mean, generally, it's always hard to argue. Mandatory probably, law. Probably, yeah, it is. But even harder if you're looking in a source that is a few degrees removed from the entity before which you're arguing. So it's hard yeah. to just, you know, the lex contractus of a weird state. If you're arguing that the subject matter is contrary to the mandatory rules of that country before the courts of another country, right? It's, you know, you're not going to succeed. No, you're likely. right, and that's <laughs> and it. It kind of depends how you see the the regime of international arbitration as it like as a counter position or what am I trying to say as a counter point to um, the domestic law or international law. So it depends on kind of like the theory of you see it. Do you see it, like you said, as this contractual theory, which is the entire arbitration is the product of the party's agreement. In that sense, then the state system, or as you say, the mandatory laws of that state should play no role um, in the understanding of arbitration. Um, they should only be relevant in forms of the lex contractus, as you say, but it shouldn't to prove like the invalidity or illegality of the contract or to void a contract, but it shouldn't play yeah. anything more than that. You can put it in a jurisdictional focus, which puts the emphasis on national sovereignty um, to believe that all aspects of arbitration are regulated by domestic law. Um, And so it should predominantly be the laws of the seat and the laws of the country where enforcement is sought. Um, So the decisions that the mandatory rule should be applied should be reached via conflicts rules um, of the of the jurisdiction, um, which begins usually with the seat. And then you could have a hybrid theory. So you say it's contractual and that the parties obviously control certain elements, such as the agreements to arbitrate and the selection of arbitrators, but it's jurisdictional in the sense that it is, um, you know, exists in for the state's purpose or to the, the promulgation of the state's domestic laws. Um, so it would not, but in, under that theory, you wouldn't really know what weight to give to the jurisdictional theory or to the contractual theory. So it would still be up in the air so it's kind of like okay you have mandatory rules which mandatory rules apply um it kind of depends on how you see arbitration in order to determine which rules would apply would it just be the mandatory rules of the contract to interpret the party's agreement and the party's relationship um or would you see it as more of like a a system within the sovereign in which case the law of the seat would have mandatory rules do you do you see one of those persuading you more, the law of the seat versus the law of the contract? Uh, I'm a bit skeptical. Maybe real, realist might be a better way to, of putting it here, that I think it's it's always going to come down to, in practice, regardless of the legal analysis getting you there, mm-hmm. it's going to come down to the, to the law that the person who is to apply it is the most comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> that so is it's going to be the sad reality, if, my if friend. <laughs> we are at the end of this. <laughs> it, it really is, <laughs> and it's also this is. I've I've been to the Hague Academy and, and I've studied and taught private international law, which this is essentially. And when it comes to this, it's it's an it's an interesting discussion. But at the end of the day, because there are so few norms that qualify as mandatory public policy, they tend to overlap regardless of which law applies. It's more a matter of actually arguing that the facts here 
meet the test of public policy and then whether or not that test is the law mm-hmm. of deceit or some other law in most scenarios it's it's going to be the same exercise i think maybe that's not what i'm supposed to say as an academic but <laughs> sort of <laughs> how really. i feel and there's also there's a connection here to the the arbitration friendly race that we've talked about before mm-hmm. that i I think in the world of arbitration, the jurisdictions who want to be perceived as arbitration friendly, they feel that it is almost a matter of prestige to have an as narrow a possible definition of public policy. Yeah. And that using public policy or, or public or mandatory rules as a way to bother arbitration, that is something for less sophisticated states. So in France yeah. or Switzerland and Sweden, almost nothing is, is uh, in violation of mandatory rules when it comes to arbitration <laughs> right but are there any mandatory rules as far as like contractual obligations like you can't contract for illegal goods for example yeah pactum turpe that's right pactum turpe. <laughs> um didn't you yeah you check out the meme on our twitter about that um yeah, I think it has the least amount of likes and retweets oh I, th- I think what it was because the preview picture didn't really show yeah, I know. My bad. I'm not. I'm not a very good meme it's, maker. It's not your fault. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about scenarios for the application of mandatory rules. As as we've been talking about many times, it's kind of well accepted that you should look to the mandatory rules of law that the parties had agreed to in the contract. Um, the exceptions um, would be, for example, if <clears throat> there's it would contradict transnational public policy. Um, but you kind of have to think: can parties contract out of um, any undesirable mandatory rules. For example, if the parties say, hey, we want to do a contract regarding illegal goods, we will now say, uh, you know, the mandatory rules of this country regarding the sale of illegal goods do not apply to this contract. Um, that one is, pr- is a pretty cut and dry, but I think there's other mandatory rules that would be a little bit more in the gray area. Um, the argument in the affirmative of that the parties can contract out would be um, that arbitrators must respect, uh, you know, party autonomy, and they have made a choice to do so. Um, And you would basically undermine the will of the parties to protect a public policy to which the arbitrators are not guardians. So you're saying party autonomy is greater than, or no, that your job as an arbitrator should be more towards the parties, which is what you kind of said in your previous segment, um, instead of looking to what the arbitrators are as guardians of public policy and part of this, like, you know, good governance of, of, Right, contracting parties, also known as playing the arbitration-friendly saxophone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The opposers of the view that you cannot uh, that you can contract out say double negative. No, no, I mean they are the opposers. I was playing the opposite of the arbitration-friendly saxophone. I was playing the depressive tuba. (laughs) Naysayers. Um, they take the party's choice of freedom a little too far and say that it would be beyond the reach of legitimate sovereign and public interest regulation. So the problem, the party's freedom of choice is not absolute and it has to be regulated in some sense. And what better way to do that than mandatory provisions of law? Um, another scenario um, for the application of mandatory rules would be transnational public policy, for example, human rights or um, racial, sexual, religious discrimination, slavery, for example, um, those fair hearing, due process, these are kind of mandatory rules um, that would be more of a transnational approach, even though there are domestic rules for this, there are transnational rules for this that could also be mandatory. Um, and it's usually accepted that um, tribunals would apply 
or must apply um, mandatory rules of transnational public policy. <clears throat> so that's kind of reached a degree of universal acceptance that you wouldn't just say that, you know, slavery is allowed in that country. Um, I don't think that would be allowed. Um, what about mandatory rules at the Lex Arbitris, so the place of the seat? Um, you know, then you have enforceability concerns if you're only worried about um, the place of the seat. The mandatory rules of the place of enforcement, we have, as I said, the New York Convention, Article 5.2b, um, that says you can refuse um, recognition or enforcement if it violates public policy of the state of enforcement. So you have that consideration. Um, but there's a good arguments against attaching too much weight um, to the enforceability concerns. Um, first, as you say, um, the New York Convention doesn't define public policy and there's no consensus on whether this uh, refers to international or domestic public policy. And you have a lot of countries, as you say, that won't even say that anything arises to a matter of public policy for that concern. Um, another reason why you shouldn't attach too much weight to enforceability um, is that you have multiple places of enforcement. So you cannot have an arbitral award that is really taking into consideration the mandatory rules of any place that this party has assets, because that would be right. um, a bit difficult. <clears throat> yeah, there are jurisdictions where it's against public policy not to sign the award at the place of arbitration, mm -hmm. for, for example. Just to illustrate that uh, the definitions of public policy, right. they differ. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas in France, you could probably like arbitrate over you know, a sales contract and you sell your sister to some stranger and that's going to be <laughs> not, not in violation of French public policy as long as it's a good arbitration. Interesting. Um, let's see. The If we look kind of to expand on this upholding, whether you should uphold party autonomy versus enforcing public policies, um, mandatory rules should not serve to you know deny party autonomy. It should ensure that party autonomy can be exercised without infringing on a third party right or a public interest um, so that you have contractual freedom in the long run. Um, and you yeah. should try to balance the public and private. Right. Okay. Good. 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 Good summary of of maybe the obvious points, but still something that I think should be put out there because the party autonomy is just between the parties. The mm -hmm. parties can do what they want as mm -hmm. amongst themselves, but as soon as they start in interfering with and violating norms that affect third parties, uh, the party autonomy. Uh, argument doesn't work right. as well. Um, can the party autonomy ruin the effectiveness of public policies as, as what you just said? And I, I think the answer you, you're saying is no. Um, it, arbitrators can hardly want to be fill a void of, you know, to be a, a global regulator in this, especially in commercial arbitration, when you're dealing with private parties that have no connection and the tribunal has no connection to the host state, they're appointed separately by the parties, they should not be seen as that. I think the question becomes a bit different when you have investment arbitration. And this is something I touch on on my article, um, is that um, in the investment arbitration, it, you you have inherent in the system um, public interests, and you are dealing with the judicial review of administrative actions of the state. So if you are saying that the tribunal is completely removed from any sort of global governance of the, the parties involved in that arbitration, I think you'd be ignoring, ignoring kind of a, a pivotal part of what that arbitration is all about. 
this feels like a recent line of thought in the world of 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 Brian, the corporate lawyer. Yes. I I think if we were to discuss this two years ago, I would be the public interest guy and you would be the let the parties do what they want guy. <laughs> that... But you have evolved. I think I may have gone slightly in the other direction as well. Maybe we're really? meeting somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm starting to argue. Maybe it's just because I want to be contrarian. You are, you, I think you are obviously following the general trend in investment arbitration now where even traditionally hardcore commercial lawyers are starting to recognize that investment arbitration is different from commercial arbitration when yes. it comes to third-party interest and public aspects. And maybe I just want to move in the other direction just to screw with the general <laughs> tendency. <laughs> You're so controversial. Um, then, So basically what I will sum up this segment, because we're trying to keep our episodes a bit shorter, um, is that... That has never worked. <laughs> it hasn't. The principal proportionality may represent a more nuanced solution to the problem, because it you have to deal with like an, a less restrictive alternative measure that would be equally affected to obtain the policy objective. So where the policy objective is one thing, the mandatory rule, applying the mandatory rule may achieve that objective, but there may be a proportionate um, solution that wouldn't be the direct application of that mandatory rule. So um, oh, nice. you can refer to the Mitsubishi Motors and for V Solar case to um, address that. Point, no worries. Um, yeah, so I think that will, with there's some more material, if anybody wants to write to us, we can respond on, on our thoughts. But um, that is some information on the mandatory rules, and they can come up in many different ways, and you should be aware of them. I had a case recently that I had to address the mandatory rules in employment law. Um, so they do come up in places you don't want to see them. <laughs> um, yeah, so should we move on? Let's... Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Hang on. Or okay. if we can leave this in, I'm just going to go and grab an actual beer because it's late. Hang on. Yeah, I'm back. What beer did you get? It's a two boy. The w working man's uh, Carlsberg. Of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> um, well, good. I'm glad someone's enjoying their um, Monday. I guess I had enough fun this weekend. I shouldn't complain. Yeah, exactly. You just got back from the previous <laughs> city of Europe. Um, all right. Let's talk about hearings, Joel, because I'm I'm not going to be the only one talking about this because you sat in on a hearing recently, a big one. So you can also opine to the preparedness uh, of the parties. Okay. Then I was under some sort of uh, incorrect assumption. That's why I opened the beer. I thought I could just... <laughs> you would be kicking your feet up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll lead the discussion, but I think you should give your two cents because you're not truly foreign to the hearing room, which, by the way, is a conference room. Um, so let's talk about things to think about when you're preparing for a hearing that... In what capacity are you now preparing? As counsel. Mm. I think because that's a little bit more to think about than as the tribunal secretary. But we can also talk about that. Um, but as counsel, especially as a junior associate, um, you have a lot of logistical nightmares ahead of you. It's basically 85% of your job description as a junior associate is to <laughs> yeah. figure out mineral water for hearings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking about food, 
minimum water. And not only that, it's like, okay, when are you going to fly down for the hearing? It's especially if it's going to be in a different time zone, you got to make sure you're a couple days before to adjust to the time zone. Your hotel needs to have a conference room and your hotel room should have a working desk in it, which is something that all hotels have. So you need to make sure you book a hotel because you'll be working late. Um, you need to make sure that your hotel has a dry cleaning service. That's always nice. Or the local dry cleaning service in your area, especially if it's a two-week hearing. I don't care if you're Cher Horowitz from Clueless. You do not have enough clothes to make it through two weeks. No, that's probably true. Um, it's definitely true. I think we agreed a week is the golden cutoff in a previous uh, yes. discussion uh, that we had on the podcast that's that's how much you can go without laundry or just an and checked in extensive bag right right and then i mean yeah because you're also going to be checking in bundles that you've brought for yourself that you've worked and reworked and everything like that um speaking of bundles printing um you have to have a full hard copy version of the um case file usually and then not only that, you need to have copies of all of the documents you'll be referring your witnesses and experts to. And then yeah, and and, th- and this is regardless of what the what the tribunal has asked for, which may Correct. differ depending on the preferences of the tribunal. This is just what you need in any event, yes. just for your own team, basically. Because the tribunal may ask for a joint hearing bundle between the parties, in which case that will have to be provided to the parties. And yeah. if you're if you don't have the luxury of having an international firm with fifteen offices around the world then you may not have an office in that jurisdiction and you have to bring a lot of pieces of paper through customs, which, by the way, on your customs form should be valued at zero or else they'll be caught. <laughs> have you heard about that happening? That uh, it happened to me. Hearing bundles. What? Yes. You haven't heard this? No. <laughs> um, Confidential stuff then, presumably? Yes, but um, they were value. You know, our office coordinator valued the documents at the price it was to print them, even though their actual value was zero. Um, oh, the price to print them was like ten thousand dollars. So oh, yeah. when it says when it says on the parcel how much is how much is all this worth, you would say ten thousand dollars. Then one um, authority, customs authority, stopped it at their customs and asked for um, a retrieval payment of something double what the cost of the pieces of paper were <laughs> um so it actually cost less to print reprint and send me out in a plane with new documents instead of um paying to get them out junior associate life junior associate <laughs> life oh i think everyone has had this as a junior associate that you've had to like transport documents or be the guardian of documents at some point. Yeah, I, I actually have some similar stories from other <laughs> friends who just a, a tiny plane out to some rural part of <laughs> Estonia and, just, <laughs> and in the get beginning you're to like, sign wow, something. This is great. Then you're like, I'm on my thirtieth hour in this van. Can someone get me out of here? <laughs> yeah. um, but it's also something to think about if you don't have, if you're not going to have um, an office or any sort of like working area. Um, at the location of the hearing, then you need to make sure that you have printing capabilities, not only in your breakout room, but in your hotel. And this isn't just going down to the lobby and asking the receptionist to print you out something. This is maybe buying or renting a printer um, oh. and buying paper and buying ink and making sure you have an IT person on hand back at your firm to help you if there's any difficulties But do, can you use, typically you're at a conference center or a congress, there's more than one hearing 
where, yes. where the hearing is taking place. Can't you use those services or is that something that is just for confidentiality That's reasons? So cute, Joel. You think we're working at working hours. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> this is good for me yeah. never having been on, on, on the council side because it being you know sitting behind or next to the arbitrator is very comfortable you just walk in 15 minutes before the hearing starts and then you walk out and then you just hang out with the arbitrators <laughs> yeah. go for a run and get a drink and oh then isn't it repeat. so nice isn't it so yeah. nice no it's <laughs> It's not nice. It's taking so you, a have, cab. you have to like set up a tiny country from scratch and <laughs> exactly. then pack it up and go home again. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and don't forget, if you don't have roaming on your phone or you're outside of the EU with an EU phone, then you better find yourself a little hotspot, a mobile hotspot that you and your team can connect to so that your firm isn't charged a gajillion dollars, a.k.a. your client, for yeah. roaming for two weeks. Oh, yeah, that almost happened to us when we were at ICA in Sydney. And I, it was the first time I was outside of the EU for a while. And I almost uh, roamed uh, a monthly salary's worth of just streaming <laughs> before I realized this is not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not a good idea. Um, and then let's talk about interpreters. You need oh. translation services. You yeah. need to vet these people, get their CDs. Yeah. This is crucial. So incredibly crucial, incredibly more so crucial. than many legal points, getting good translators. We should maybe interview a translator. Yeah, absolutely. I know one, a funny do one. You? Let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. She's great. Let's do that. Because... Or he, if we end up with a he. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, I mean, you're right. It's crucial. Why you, as someone who said a secretary, why do you think it's crucial? Because you'll lose the attention of the tribunal. If the translation doesn't work or uh, if the translation is bad, it doesn't matter how much you prepared the message that you want to want to get through. You're going to lose it if yeah. it's not conveyed properly. And that's just such an seemingly easy thing to address. But it's so hard to know, as you say, because it's you don't, I guess, typically vet them unless you've used them before. Right. And that's what you're looking for. But it might be the case that you need a language that you haven't worked in before or or you don't have recommendations to go on. So it's basically right. just a, a wild card. And it may, even though they have experience and uh, have worked in a, a billion arbitrations before, it may uh, they may show up at the hearing and you realize mm -hmm. this person maybe knows the language but has never really understood the law before. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have like three different lawyers, on two, two on each side and the tribunal trying to communicate a very sophisticated legal point mm -hmm. through a translator who doesn't know law. So it's just like trying to explain uh, discounted cash flow method using like your grandfather as an interpreter. Sure, he knows <laughs> language, but it's exactly. not going to make sense when he has to interpret what you're saying and then convey that to someone else. <laughs> yeah. And which is why you need to prepare a bundle of documents for the interpreters. Yeah. Um, oh. When they're going through witness examinations, they should have be able to follow along on the documents you're referring the person to. So that if you're asking the witness to read something, you need to make sure that they're, the translator is following along so that they can interpret it word for word. Um, it's a nightmare. I mean, I've, and because you can't have, it's not just one interpreter at a hearing, they alternate every like 30 minutes because it's so exhausting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you and you know when one is better than the other, and you're just like hoping that your cross examination happens when it's during the good <laughs> interpreter's turn. Um, but yes, to keep them prepared as well, to maybe make them a glossary of terms or um, give them yeah to give them the the witness examination bundles is all is also a very good idea. 
Can I ask you now that I'm starting? I guess there's, there's more coming. Mm-hmm. There's so much to do. How do you prepare for this? Are there internal checklists at each firm that you like a Bible that you update every time you figure something out that oh we should have thought about this so that next time you have a checklist that is nine thousand separate uh, entities that you have to go through. Um, there is not a checklist. I have made myself a checklist um, at what my first hearing because there was so much to think about. I was like, I don't, I never want to have to go through this again. So I made myself a checklist, including one of the checklist items being be sure to remember what your investment is in your <laughs> investment. Because I'm not kidding, because you're thinking about so many other things. And like, what's your investment? And you're just like, oh, it's like such a basic question. But that's why you have partners. That's like the only thing the lead counsel <laughs> has to know. You have to figure out all the practicalities. And then the person who's like sitting in the, in the lead chair, that's mm-hmm. the person who has to who respond to the question, what is your investment? They shouldn't really right. be on the table of the person who also has to like build a printer from scratch <laughs> during the night before. That's true. That's true. That should be their job. Absolutely. Um, booking a hotel needs to be done six months in advance, usually. If you're going to be 15, 20 people in one hotel for a period of two weeks, it's usually not just available at your local four-star, five-star hotel. Um, so that, there might be certain preferences involved depending on the seniority and, and personality of mm-hmm. the people in the team. Mm-hmm. Do you have food allergies or recommendations from people in your team? Absolutely. Um, what else do you need to consider at a hearing? <laughs> um, what Flights in and out. Flights in and out. For how long after are you supposed to stay? And if you stay, where do you sit and work once you don't have access to the hearing facilities anymore? Yeah, that's why you need to have a book a hotel conference room if you don't have an office in that city. <clears throat> and that's a that's a separate cost to the client because you can't have four um, senior arbitrators in your bedroom with your underwear <laughs> thrown against the, the chair. Yeah, right. That, that wouldn't be very good. Um, I think there's a couple of other things. I, I think there's a lot of technological advances that happen in hearing rooms that we're just really not taking advantage of yet. Um, for example, having all your witness examination bundles be done electronically um, so that you mm. you can actually send like the room a document. So you, each like the tribunal gets an iPad, the opposing counsel gets an iPad and the witness gets an iPad and they can all basically follow along on your presentation of documents. Oh, I mean, that's five, seven years away next level but let's be the first i mean i want to be the yeah. first one i think it's, it's not i mean it, it's not it's actually like the previous level it's just that we're very slow yeah. in this field and you have to educate very old arbitrators right because that's that's the argument is that people like to highlight um yeah but this i i worked with an arbitrator who did that had an ipad Yes. Uh, and insist on getting anything digitally and use some sort of software. It took some time, they mm-hmm. said, to figure it out which software worked the best, but then eventually ended up with software that you could easily highlight on. Yes. So this arbitrator had the entire case file in the iPad together with the many other cases that the arbitrator worked on. Right. And just, I mean, that's it sounds stupid to pitch it like, oh, everything is just in one thing because that's what an ipad is obviously but in in arbitration i don't think it is typically the case that busy people keep everything on like one entity no absolutely not but it's it's genius and especially when you're dealing with like saving documents and files and if you're the junior associate on the case you're holding everyone else's notes and 
asked to type them up later, it's just so much easier if you're able to annotate and highlight into an electronic form already. And then... Speaking of which, transcripts and court reporters mm -hmm. you also have to think about, and that's similar to translators. That is also something that can make or break because then you'll end up arguing both sides over the, the like, appropriate rewriting of the transcript once you have the transcript. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people that spend their entire hearing looking, reading the transcript as the witnesses answering their own question um, because you need to verify that what the witness is right. actually yeah. being put and down. This is it. We should mention that for those of our listeners who have not been in an arbitration hearing, typically you have a court reporter and um, what is going on and what is being said in the hearing room is transcribed live so that the, right. both sides and the, the tribunal, they also get like five seconds after something has been said on the record, the record is being typed up on a screen in front of you so you can just follow along which, as you say, is useful if you, for example, speak the same language as the witness does, so you can double check the translation as it is being translated. Yes. Um, and I know people that take pictures of, because it's live note and it's really hard, you can annotate in that and export it into a PDF, but sometimes your notes aren't very accurate or you don't really know how to get back to it, um, get back, you don't really know where that point in the text was. But if you see something really juicy come out in a live transcript, I've seen people take pictures with their phones or iPads of the live transcript that shows the page and the line number so that when you're doing your closing arguments, for example, which has to be like a 24-hour turnaround, you yeah. can kind of go through the main points that you want to hit and have citations in your closing argument, which is quite persuasive. That's cool. That's yeah, but this is like next level stuff that you don't even think you're just like, I'm just trying to sleep and I'm trying not to die. Can can you answer me this question? Why would you do this as opposed to uh, work as a secretary? I don't understand why you want to produce all this shit when you, there is the opportunity of just enjoying the fruits of someone else's labor and just focusing on the fun legal points. That's so true. I'm sure that's like being a barrister. I mean, in the, in the it's like, oh, here, yeah, that's right. Here are all the documents and here's everything. Just please be pretty and speak better, prettier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you think about this for a few hours? <laughs> no, I remember being, being secretary and just looking at the parties and like looking them in the eye, like the movie Get Out being like, I feel you. You are trapped. <laughs> Um, because you can, you go for a run with the arbitrators and you go out to dinner afterwards and talk about something other than the case. It's quite nice. Yeah, it is. But it's you have the... to be on the ball as well, like knowing the case file to a certain extent in case something comes up and you can point the arbitrators to which bundle that's in and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. You can't just check out. And we should say just for the record that once everybody packs up and, and goes home, parties typically check out and that's when the work begins for the tribunal and by extension for the secretary as well right. afterwards when you have to just like take everything that the, the parties have done and turn it into an award <laughs> yeah they've just been like yelling at you for two weeks and yeah now right. you have to figure it out if there's not post-hearing briefs for another year who knows oh that is true oh my god but brian my beer is out okay and so is my voice so <laughs> let's put a plug in it Yep. No pin. It's just a plug. <laughs> Thank you, Dimitri, yeah. for giving us some stellar research yet again. Um, we've been really writing our researchers. I'm sorry, guys.
Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you, Luke, Eric Peterson, and, and I, reporter, for sponsoring this season. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter. I think we should be able to break 1,000 followers. What are we at now? I don't know, 800 maybe? So it's still us slash bit, a bit to go, but we should. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the Arb Station. Uh, anyway, on, on Twitter. And I think, when do we record next time? It's in two weeks from now. Are we in, in DC then? No, we're not. No, we're mm-hmm. not. Oh, okay. So next one will be another the boring 25th. one. The 25th. Oh, the 26th will release the next one. So that will be yep. just before DC. Yeah, but I will, knock on wood, be a doctor then. Knock next on time. wood. Mm-hmm. There you go. It's on. It's on recording now. Yep. Okay. That's going to be incredibly embarrassing in case I flunk the, <laughs> the defense. All right, Joel. I'll see you in person soon. Yes. Thank you. All right. Bye.